friends, welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. As always, this is your host, Chris Harmon. And today I have a amazing opportunity to kind of see worlds collide as a as an evangelical and and someone who moved into the reformed tradition as a as a younger kid. I, I read a book called The Shack and it it really changed the way that I viewed faith. It it really challenged some of my uh perceptions about God. And and this was in a time where I was very much identifying with the evangelical uh, world. And as my faith became more ecumenical, I started reading the work of another great author, Brad Jersak, who uh, I've told him before, but uh, it hasn't been released yet, how much his work has really uh, affected and impacted my life. But today I get the special opportunity to sit down and talk with both of them about their new book, The Pastor. So guys, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Oh, we're honored to be there. And it's yeah. Dr. Brad Jerzak. Dr. Oh Brad Jerzak. Or just Bradley, if you like. Yeah. I have an, I have an honorary doctorate. <laughs> I, um, I don't. Yeah. That, those honorary ones, it's like they do acknowledge you, you worked for it as hard as I did. You know what I mean? Like well, for life. <laughs> there's a funny story about that, but we won't get into it. Because I actually, I only went to that school one year <laughs> and I dropped my pants at graduation because I thought it would be funny. And it, <laughs> turned into a big political statement and a big stink. And and then a, a number of years later, and I, I was friends with some of the, some of the hierarchy and, and some of the, and one in particular, she changed the whole place. I mean, really revolutionized the place into becoming one of the best urban campuses in the country. And, and at one point they said, we're going to give you an honorary doctorate. This is awesome. <laughs> this is hilarious. That's such a good, that, I, I love that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I am, I, like I said, before we started talking, I'm, I'm super excited to just talk to um, both of you guys. And I usually start the show just by asking a little bit about um, y'all's journey and like what it's, what it's looked like from uh, more, not evangelical, but more of a, a mainstream context as, as you've kind of learned and grown and, and experienced life to where you guys both are now. Bradley? Well, yeah, I'll, I could do sort of the uh, this version. Uh, I grew up in a conservative Baptist church, very dispensational for 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, but my parents were open to the spirit and they cautioned me about getting, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. But I did anyway. Uh, I went to a conservative dispensational college and, and, uh, and then, but I met my wife and I met friends. Um, and after that, uh, those friends and, and her, they sort of guided me toward the Mennonite church, which was my wife's home church. And I ended up being a pastor there for 10 years. And then um, during that time, we also experienced uh, the Holy Spirit in, in more profound ways, and especially in the world of inner healing. And, and uh, we're pr practitioners of that. And then uh, after 10 years with the Mennonites, we planted a little church called Fresh Wind that I led for 10 more years and Eden led for five. And that was very specific to people on the margins, people with disabilities, addicts, the poor, uh, children who couldn't behave in other churches and so on. And that was a wonderful project. Uh, but I had experienced a, quite a crash in 2008 um, that, that led me to resign from pastoring. And uh, I went off and did my PhD in, in theology. And uh, by the time I got out of there, I had also had very good mentoring and healing, uh, partly through uh, an archbishop 
of the Orthodox Church, Lazar Pahalo. And so um, uh, by, let's see, I guess 2012, I joined the Orthodox Church and then I entered the realm of academia. And so that's proceeded till this day. I'm now the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University, and I'm a monastery preacher in the Orthodox Church. So it's like that's a long, that's a galaxy away from my, my Baptist people, but I still love them. <laughs> And they, most of them love me too. <laughs> yeah. I, I identify still with <laughs> modern evangelicals, whether they like it or not. So mm. it's, that's my tradition and my heritage. Same, very similar to Brad. And, and, and um, I grew up a missionary kid, preacher's kid in a holiness denomination, very dispensational eschatology wise, um, very modern evangelical, angry God, distant uh, omni being and um, and 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 yet they had a they had some really strong threads um, they didn't know really how to talk about the Trinity but they they really tried mm. and um, so some of that is part of my history and and some of the some of the um, elegant um, parts of my own religious upbringing and tradition still resonate with me um, from then. Um, I've, uh, so I identify in the sense that that's, that's where I come from and those are my people and I understand them. I know what they're afraid of um, most of the time and, yeah. um, and I know why they're angry with me, or some of them. Um, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, I, and I love them dearly. And I, it's, it's like, well, they're my people. Be careful how you talk about them, you mm -hmm. know? And, um, and I, I really like Richard Rohr's idea of uh, include and transcend, mm -hmm. you know. And so, um, so you know, I, I didn't know what else to do. I went to Bible school and then seminary, worked for a church for a short period of time, a couple, couple and a half years, and then I went into business. Um, um, always loved writing, always uh, wrote songs and poetry and stuff. Um, never crossed my mind to ever publish. I had a huge crash and burn. Mine was in 94. And uh, uh, that started really, the crash was January 4th, 94, at about 2.30 in the afternoon. And uh, not that I can remember. And, um, and that started an 11-year dismantling, unraveling, hellish, difficult process of... Mm of dealing with all, all kinds of damage that resided in my own shack. And that's where the metaphor for the shack begins to emerge. Um, um, I really hurt Kim, who, I'm, who I've now been married to. Just We just celebrated 41 years and, mm. uh, and we're doing awesome. I mean, one of the beautiful things about this pandemic and, and quarantine is that we really found out how much we like each other. and. Uh, mm. And, um, but it took her and I 11 years to heal from, from the adultery that she caught me in and, uh, three, three month affair with one of her best friends. And that, that started, it was either face myself and try to find a way to change or die. Mm. And it, I mean, it was that extreme. And so I pulled yellow pages called the therapist community and, walked into total strangers and for the first time in my life asked if somebody could help me. Mm. And um, 11 years later, I, I emerged from that 
process, reconcile to Kim, reconcile to myself, um, reconcile to the to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and finally felt healthy enough to do something that Kim actually had been asking me to do, which was to write something as a gift for my kids, and um, and a year in which we had nothing, the year I turned fifty, my year of jubilee, the year I finally felt healthy enough to do this. I wrote a story mostly on the train to one of my three jobs. And that Christmas made 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything I ever wanted it to do and uh, mm -hmm. gave them the only gift that I had for them that year, which was a little book I wrote called The Shack. And I went back to work. It did everything I wanted it to do. And then my friends, I got they got the extra copies. I'm 15. I don't have 15 kids. I have six. And um, so they started giving it away and... That started a whole chain reaction, and that look, look what happened. Who, <laughs> who would have thought? Yeah, and um, and out of that came all kinds of two beautiful for words relationships and um, invitations into the holy ground of other people's stories. Mm. So, Brad being one of them. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank thank you both for sharing. I'm kind of just that that story I, I don't think i've actually ever heard the story behind um that book but i think where i really want to thank first of first of all you and, and i guess both of you is just with your the ways that your theology have have helped so many people heal um brad we we had a conversation a while ago about how theology isn't something we treat it as if it's something that we can just like kind of pull back the curtain on and observe, but it's, it's out in the field where we actually begin um, to understand who God is based off of experience. And you guys through the, the suffering you guys have encountered and through um, the trials that you've overcome as, as people and as thinkers and as uh, creatives and, and pastors in, in many ways and respects, it, it it has helped so many people, including myself, heal. I mean, they're, both of your guys' work in, in different seasons of my life where I genuinely was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I don't know how I'm going to bring these things back together. I don't know how I'm going to be in love with Jesus. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this uh, uh, emotional trauma from being uh, emotionally abused by addict parents. Like, I don't know how I'm going to deal with these things um, because of the pictures of God that you guys can portray and, and bring to revelation based off of the experiences you guys have had. You guys have had a profound uh, touch on, on my life. And, and so as one of those many, many, many people that you guys have touched, I just want to say thank you. And you're welcome. And it's, and Bradley and I are both this, in the same boat on this. And that is we are, we live in a state of gratitude because we were both pretty lost you know, I was, yeah. I was absolutely fractured and broken, but I had a very good persona, you know, and it turns out that I'm actually smart. Um, even though I thought I just fooled people most of my life because of the depth of shame, which ties yeah. into lots of stuff in my childhood and, uh, including the sexual abuse that was part of my experience overseas mm -hmm. and, and at boarding school. And, um, and, and we just are, overwhelmed by a sense of the relentless affection that we're surrounded by in the embrace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. I'm, I'm so thankful that there's been ripple effects 
but if there had if there had been none in terms of you know impact for you and for others it would have been okay cuz mm. just the process of being able to love my kids in and a depth that is open to me in terms of my relationship with my grandchildren um and and on and with human beings in general that's enough and um so you're welcome and i'm grateful yeah there's this sense of um that like there that we can we can talk about the mercy of god with boldness because we have experienced it and we've witnessed it we're we're eyewitnesses of profound and supernatural mercy that the the world frankly even in you know the, the those who think they're most compassionate don't have a, a lot of time for the levels of redemption that we've experienced ourselves or have been um able to witness in others but we're just trying to pay that forward and 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 there is an authenticity to to it because it's not theoretical for us well and here's here's a thought and that is what we believe about the nature and character of god has so revolutionized both our lives that it has produced an authenticity and wholeness in us that is undeniable Mm. and it's like None of that happened with the God that I grew up with, you know, Gandalf yeah. with a bad attitude God. It just it just didn't happen. And and I tried. I mean, I really wanted to live a holy life, totally given over to the to God. I did. And uh but I, I just I couldn't get my inside world and my outside world to to mesh and to be uh, cohesive and coherent, and um, and so those eleven years that that is so reflected in the work that I write, and 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 Brad's journey so reflective in the works that he writes. Mm. But outside those works, we actually live like this. Mm. We're not perfect. I mean, ask him, and um, and I I know Eden knows it. Bradley's not perfect, and because she, she tells me. And uh, but but talk about the basic coherence in our lives that is directly connected to the vision and revelation of God that we have both experienced. And 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 if God is not good and not good, but if God is not love and not love, but then then we're in a world of hurt and. Um, mm. And it's like, oh, uh, no, what we have seen has absolutely changed our lives and continues to. Yeah. Well, and that's that's that brings up an interesting question of I, I was just having this conversation with my father-in-law the other day. We were talking about um, why so many uh, pastors, either they have uh, they have kind of falling outs or they have moral failures or they have. uh frustrations with their congregation or even just i think about six to eight months ago we had a pastor down where i'm from actually commit suicide mm-hmm. um but i'm i'm wondering if a lot of that emptiness that people in ministerial positions feel is because they're trying to take people to a place that they themselves have never actually been like it, it's all conceptual yeah you, i think i that think that's sense? a great point chris uh, it, it's not my point. It's my father-in-law. He's he's oh. much more profound than I am. I wish yeah. it was my point. That was a good, that's a great point, father-in-law. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the idea, well, and here's the problem is um, we need to work out what it is to have and to bring an experience of the reality of God to people's lives. And, and otherwise, you've just got an idea. And um, when that idea uh, can't handle real life and the mess we see, um, because it's an idea rather than a gospel, then mm. then we're, we become disillusioned. We just look for the next better idea. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think I think there's also an element that you know people. I think generally speaking, the majority of people who move in that direction want to do something valuable and worthwhile to the kingdom of God. You know, they mm. they're they're doing it for the right reasons. The system of religion that has been established in Christianity, and we've got to be very clear, Christianity is largely a religion. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a relationship with God. It, it, God still finds you in it. You know, the only time you'll find God in a box is because God wants to be where we are. And mm -hmm. so you're, you're not going to get away or separated, um, even by being a Christian, but, but, um, Tongue in cheek, by the way. And, uh, but, you know, the system itself is designed to put you in such a crucible, it's going to expose that which is not whole. And, and we don't know how to love people who aren't whole, especially mm -hmm. when we've created imaginations and images and job descriptions and requirements and a whole set of expectations that they need to live. It is rough being in pastoral leadership with the kinds of vitriol that sits there and judgment that sits there in terms of performance. There is a real connection between um, the inability to be authentic in pastoral leadership and the prevalence of, of disastrous failure. You know, you only, we, we only hear about the stuff that actually makes it out, but it's happening all the time. Hmm. And, um, you know, if you, if you have any kind of a connection to pastoral leadership generally, and you are in the therapeutic community, you hear it all the time, but they can't yeah. say anything because they're not safe within their own communities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of me and my wife, we, we left a, a church right before uh, COVID started. We were both members and there's still a lot of people that I, I really love and respect from that community, but I'll never forget um, the, the pastor went up and made a statement about abortion. And I was back behind the, the pulpit and I was talking to some people and I overheard the conversation and this person came up to the pastor and was like, uh, we really appreciate your bravery. No other pastor, it, it, not many pastors would get up and say that. And I was like, no, I, I didn't say this, but I was thinking it. I was like, a lot of pastors would say that because that's the thing to say. If he got up and talked about the crimes that are happening on the border, if he got up and said something about uh, the, the death sins, penalty, yeah, about the death penalty, if he got up and said something about guns, if he got up and said, then it would be, that's a reason to be like, thank you. Not very many pastors would say that, but there's this weird stigma where it's like, you can talk about what's right, but only the quote unquote right that makes us comfortable. Yeah. And, when, and, and we should put a caveat in here and that's uh, Chris and I and, and Bradley are all talking about what we grew up within. 
Mm. You know, there there is a lot of pastoral leadership and framing that is very different from the modern evangelical frame of reference, right, Brad? Mm. That's true. Yeah, and I'm um, so it, it, I even know I'm supervising a thesis yesterday where I'm where I'm asking the guy for major revisions because he speaks about <clears throat> um, uh, the evangelicals' lust for certitude of all things right wing or something. Well, hang on a second. Um, that's assuming a particular brand within a particular nation. And, and, mm. and then you just start thinking about the breadth of the movement, um, evangelical and Christian for that matter. And, and to remember that, that uh, there are Jesus followers of all colors and all nations. And that even those who it's uh, that capital E evangelical label is, is, really strange now because it ranges from people like Eugene Peterson um, uh, and uh, all the way to, let's see, your, your most uh, rabid alt-right folks and, or mm. let's say, um, and then don't forget, there's a whole, a black evangelical com community. And then, and then within these, within these movements, you have a range of experiences, right? I, I mm -hmm. have to say that, um, I, I do often hear like very negative things about the movement and I see it in the papers and I even, and I see examples all the time, but then let, let's say Paul or I get invited to particular congregations. And what we find there is beautiful people who just want to love Jesus and they'll yep. make casseroles for the widows and the, and the widows are knitting for the, the street people. And you're like, Oh, hang on a second. Where's this thing I'm supposed to hate so much. Right. So it's it's tricky because it's always it's still people and uh, even those yeah. that we call ex evangelicals who've, who've who've made their exit and some of them some of them will really feel that that's a liberation and then others seem to have gone from the frying pan into the fire so mm. yeah we I I think it's good if we just acknowledge that that this wow the this whole thing is incredibly complex but but we are speaking from our particular experiences and that counts too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with, with that as well. I, I definitely was not trying to make. Um, oh, oh, I, I didn't think you were. I was thinking about people listening to this who have a different experience of community and church than, than, you know, so much of what was difficult for us. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's a, Yeah. That, that's important. It's a it, and that that's that brings up an even more interesting point of of the fact that I I, I appreciate that you brought that up, Brad. Of of people in the evangelical community who know how hard it is to be a pastor, who know how difficult it is to be in ministry, who know how difficult even just to be like a volunteer, like the kind of uh, vitriol you get put under, the kind of microscope uh, that people view you under, and everything has to be in order, and all your T's have to be crossed and all your I's have to be dotted and everything has to be perfect. So I, with a show that's really about application for people that have kind of walked away from the evangelical movement into a more deconstruction, water to wine oriented faith expression, what do you think we should do um, for those pastors as people that might, in some ways, uh, my personal story and stories of many of my friends who have gone to their pastors and been like, Hey, here's where I'm at theologically. And it just becomes this, uh, shunning if, if that makes sense. Like what, how do we, as people who have been hurt by that system, get behind it? 
Hmm. <laughs> Paul? Uh, <laughs> oh. You know, it's, it's going to come back to um, the way through is toward. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and that's that's about every kind of divisiveness that there is. You know, I, I don't care. Even in, even in the book, The Pastor of Crisis, that we're kind of talking about, that Brad and I have written together, the novella. And, I mean, even in that, one of the underlying questions is, is there anybody irredeemable? And what gives me the right to sit in a seat of judgment with regard to the process that they're in? Mm. Yeah. You know, the, the, the sad thing is that we have such a violent history that is embedded inside of us that, that when, when somebody crashes and burns, we take some glee because at least we feel we're better than somebody. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and the reality is, is that without exposure, the healing is not even possible. Hmm. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit to expose. That's the, the Greek word to convict, but it means to expose. And, and so, you know, in the novella that we wrote together, you see a stereotypical combination character, uh, the pastor, who is an easy target. And that's, you know... Uh, simply because this is so prevalent and it's a, it's an important conversation to ask why. And, and a lot of it is that, you know, people have gained influence and position and things like that without ever dealing with the brokenness in their own soul. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the greater the quote unquote responsibility and the greater the job description and the more pressure that becomes the crucible in which the things which are not whole are going to be exposed. And, mm. and God is right in the middle of that, not to humiliate anyone. When it says, you know, there will be a day when everything you've done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops, that's, that's not a threat of humiliation. That is a promise mm. of redemption. Yeah. You know, and so, so you know, in, in the novella, we've got a character who absolutely needs exposure in order for there to be a way through. And so, you know, it's like, how do I sit in relationship to those who are absolutely hidden and broken inside? You know, who, who's the child inside that person? You know, and, mm. and you know that in the shack, I touched on that quite a bit. And they did a great job in the, in the cave scene in the movie where, where Mackenzie's sitting in the seat of judgment and he begins to judge the world and God and 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 yet his humanity emerges in terms of the relationships that matter to him and even toward a child that he sees as innocent not realizing it's the father who brutalized him when he was a young man mm. and and so it's like oh man the nuance and the texture of our humanity is so much deeper than a flat screen and um and it's like ah oh. so how does transformation find a way inside the brokenness of a human soul? And, and that's what we're trying to explore without pulling punches, without, without being a, a Christian book, you know, mm. and, and, and yet not being gratuitous in any sense and not, and, and not um, uh, playing with people's, this is, I mean, this whole novella is based on real people that we know. And, mm. and 
some of it is a spillover from our own brokenness. Hmm. Yeah, this the, I liked what Paul said there about that, that word toward, right? And so in the sense of um, when we orient ourselves towards the light of divine love, we experience that eternal kind of life or fullness of joy and so on. When we turn from it, we create a shadow. And in that shadow, all sorts of horrible things can happen. And that's what, that's what we see in, uh, in this story about the pastor in his, in, in hiding from the light in, and orienting himself away from divine love. Really, he's created his own hell. Hmm. And, um, and, and that it's not a metaphor for hell. Hell is a metaphor for that. And, yep. Yep. and so, um, and, and the beautiful thing, and St. Antony the Great said this, that, the, that, the, that God no more turns away. So in terms of toward, he's toward us. He's always toward us. He no more turns away from the sinner than the sun stops shining for the blind man. So here we have this, this pastor, and, and, and for him, there's a real blindness and a hellishness and an alienation. And yet the relentless love of God is pursuing him even into as the opening scene, he's in a psych ward. Mm. So, um, so we see in Christ's the, the whole, that whole line from the apostles creed, he descended into hell. Um, that's not just talking about some afterlife rescue. It's talking about the dominion of, of darkness or alienation that happens as we turn away. Well, so what is repentance other other than um, returning, re returning, returning to the light? And then also we find those within the book. Um, you're going to find some characters who who are willing to participate in God's relentless orientation toward in order to become agents of forgiveness rather than agents of humiliation. Hmm. And I think that's the problem with this, you know, um, what Christ says about things being exposed, um, that that's meant to be for good. But often we thought, well, we'll do his job for him. <laughs> and, hmm. and in doing his job, we, we actually create the very oppression that he would be wanting to save us from. Mm. Um, and so hopefully, hopefully um, the novel will help people reconsider that and say, actually, no one's irredeemable. Maybe I can even participate as an agent of mercy um, but also, uh, perhaps I need that mercy myself. Mm. And, yeah. Yeah. And you guys definitely didn't pull any punches with, with that book. It, it, and not, not, not in a bad way, not in a, a way that would, like you said, uh, hurt people or, or offend people or be too grotesque or graphic, but it, it definitely, it was a very, um, harrowing, compelling, uh, and, and it's sometimes really tear-jerking read. Yeah, um, a, friend, a friend of mine said it's beautifully brutal. Mm, yeah. No, I, I would agree with that. Uh, yeah, I have no patience. I don't mean this in the sense of uh, I get angry or something, but it's it's more like my nervous system suffered enough damage during my meltdown that, mm -hmm. that I, I, I don't, I'm not able to be entertained by abuse or something like that. But in yeah. this book, we have, we do have to enter the world of that darkness with the light and in a way that is not that, that part's not about entertaining the reader, you know, that part's about inviting them into, into an important exploration of our own shadow. Um, 
but then hopefully also the joy of, mm. of encountering the light there. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it, 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 but that's the thing though, is like, I, I was, I was talking to a, a friend of mine and we were talking about the woman at the well and, and I was sitting there talking with him cause he was feeling all of this. We were talking about pastors and, and deconstruction and, and, uh, an elder at the church that had made him feel a lot of shame about something that had happened. And he brought up the woman at the well story. I, I don't know how it came up. I can't really remember, but I brought up the fact that when Jesus said to this, or when Jesus talked to this woman and, and tells her everything he, she ever did, she goes and says, you have to meet this person that has told me everything I've ever done. And that's, that doesn't like, that doesn't happen today. Like if I was to sit with my small group leader, like, and talk to him about something and then be like, dude, you got to meet this guy. Like he just gave me the, the butt kicking in my life. It's like, no, like there's a, there's a certain level of, of exposure, obviously, if he's telling you everything you've ever done, but it's Jesus, like it, it's bringing healing into this situation. Right. So I don't know if that creates like a false paradigm within the way that we quote unquote tell um, everything we've ever done. But what do you think it is about um, the stigma of having those conversations or even just the way that we have them that create situations uh, like the one for the pastor in the book? It's a great question. I, th I think part of it is, is that we don't actually trust the, the presence of, of the indwelling Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm. And so we go back to our, our mental exercises and our ability to communicate and, uh, and change people's mind from mind to mind rather than be aware of what the Holy Spirit is saying at any given moment. And, mm. and so that's, you know, that's how we're kind of trained. Plus, you know, we haven't let anybody know what's going on inside our shack, you know, it's like, mm. um, and, and, and it's, it, it gets awful personal when you start being around broken people. You know, the reason that Jesus says you need to go to the, to the poor and, and the hurt and those in prison is not for their sake. It's for yours, right? Because broken people get to a place where they just don't hide it anymore. And um, part of the devastation of religion is that it becomes cubicles in which people hide and, and, and create false images and personas and false identities and then try to work things out from there. Um, so I think that's part of it. Hmm. Yeah, one thing, uh, it's even a line from the book, um, and it, it came from, it actually came from that Archbishop Lazar Pahalo, that moral outrage is a form of confession. Yep. And yeah. so sometimes, uh, especially, the, the pastor represents, in some ways, a kind of self-righteousness that is behind which we're hiding our, our own deep shame. And, and um, so when we see people like the pastor in a public arena, that have that have a crash. Paul referred earlier there to to how there, there can be a kind of perverse glee in seeing it. I I think that the redemptive side of that is we do like seeing, um, we we do like seeing corruption made right. But it's more mm -hmm. like <laughs> there's this ugly side to it that it's like well that um, that it, it felt good that the hypocrite actually is exposed for his hypocrisy and uh, but. That's uh, it's just showing the, the kinds of armor that we put on ourselves. Hmm. And if we can remember that beneath that, there's a suffering soul there. And in fact, 
um, to, to treat then the gospel as, as an encounter with the great physician. And in fact, I, I think we called Dr. Hope at one point, she's a psychiatrist in the, in the psych ward. We just say she's a great physician and it, it's just echoing mm. this thing of that our this journey is not about overcoming, um, just overcoming our depravity somehow through punitive means. It's about healing broken people. And my goodness, I, I, I am and was one and I'm in a healing journey that I really appreciate. And now that's the grid through which I understand the gospel now. And I think that's the way to practice this with people. In fact, um, uh, I, I go, I'm one of these unusual people. I go to formal confession, but the guy who, um, the guy who does the confessions, he is not permitted to ask you what sin you've committed he, hmm. or what you feel guilty about. His, his job is to say, what's troubling you? Hmm. And he directly approaches it as a, as a, a doctor of, uh, of the soul. And that's, I think, what, what's going on even in a parable like the Good Samaritan. Um, Jesus is the Good Samaritan who has dropped off the half-dead guy to to this hostel and he's transfigured it into a hospital or a mm. hospice and and then he says i'm going to leave them here with you and i'm giving you everything you need to bring them back to health and then here's the clue that it's jesus and when i return if there was anything lacking you know from what i provided i'll i'll pay you back in full don't worry and so i feel like that that we've been if we're to talk about something called church, maybe it's that it, it's that that the good physician or the good shepherd or the good Samaritan that that he he finds broken people like me and he delivers them into communities. And that could be a church, but it could be a twelve-step group, could be a, a fellowship of friends, uh, could be a therapist uh, where where we undergo the a journey for the suffering of our, of our souls that produced the acting out behavior, right? We've got to get down to the roots of stuff and not just always lop off stuff with our legalistic acts, but say, what, what, what's, what's generating this? Mm. Right. So, so let's back up a bit and go like, so it's, that's also true for those <laughs> of us who experience that sense of glee, you know, and mm. cause we can, we can make, you know, those who sit in the seat of judgment now, those people. Because we don't do that. But in right. doing that, we've done it. Dang. And and it's like the way the way forward is toward, the way through is toward. And and the light of the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is residing in the person that you are upset with. Very good. Right? Mm -hmm. And so to turn away from that person is to turn away from the light that is being presented to you, whether they know it or not. And 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 so even in the conversation about, you know, sometimes there is this perverse glee when you see somebody crash and burn. And Brad was make, made sure that it's like there is this element of justice being done. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I'm glad they got exposed rather than me or whatever. Mm. But that sense comes from a brokenness that you don't see clearly. Mm. And, um, and so, you know... Uh, there's, there's a real challenge within every single relationship that we have uh, about what is unfolding in our own heart and lives. And, um, 
And so, you know, you, you watch this pastor and, and there's so much of it. You, you're like, oh, you know, he's, he's getting his, right? Right. But, mm-hmm. but as, as the story humanizes him, you have to really work hard at keeping him dehumanized in your own heart. Mm, yeah. And especially when you begin to recognize some of your own story and brokenness. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that's so, so that was so, uh, or that is in general, so difficult. I mean, even just a few weeks ago, we see someone like Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, have his whole thing. And you have, uh, Eric Metaxas punch someone in the face at a rally. And you have these situations where it's really easy for me to other these people, like these two individuals in particular, because I'm like, these guys are whatever words you want to use and i think the the in my not wanting to include them mindset which is more often than not i kind of lean into texts like um the the removal of the lamppost in in revelation i'm always like oh well that's just the removal of their lamppost so i guess i can be kind of like good with the fact that this person's alienate alienated now so as as people that uh, and and especially with your book in in, in general it, it was it even with the the humanization of the pastor there's still these points where you're like but he did horrible things like he's made horrible choices so like i still want to be like yeah but like justice was done his lamppost's been removed he's experiencing hell like that's that's okay like there's a part of me that's like that's okay so what, what how do how do you overcome something like that like how do you overcome that uh, knee-jerk reaction and also I mean possibly that proof texting of scripture to be like they deserve that yeah well, plus you're you're proof texting people yeah mm. and yeah, it's easy you just you just have to be worse than them I, <laughs> so um, <laughs> I actually kind of mean that in this way uh, that when I think about those who have insulted me or you know um, harmed me in some way it's like yeah I that's a real thing, but let's just uh, ponder the harm I've done and then think about the parable of the unforgiving servant. And just, it's like, how would I withhold a mercy that I myself depend on daily? Mm. Um, I, how can I put them in the land of the law and retribution while I want to stand in the law of grace and, and, and redemption? And hmm. um, what, if we're, what if we're all in the, in the same storm? Um, that we, I, I saw a neat meme the other day. It says we're we're not all in the same boat, but we're all in the same storm. So in my, you know, the storm of the human condition is pretty intense. Um, I got in a pretty good boat compared to some people in terms of weathering it with good friends and a, um, the the nation where I live and the kind of community. I've got a pretty good boat, but it's the same storm, right? And so to mm. say, well, I, I'm gonna just. Oh, thank God they got thrown out of the boat. You're like, that's so uh, uh, I guess in practice, in practice, the way I worked through that, and it's very hard work for me, um, was was beginning to pray for the people who offend me on a daily basis for a while until the Mm -hmm. obsession lifts. But also then I don't do that until I've prayed for those that I've harmed. And it reminds me that there's people in my wake who are still unhealed. And so if there are those people that, that I've injured and, and that are struggling still because of decisions I made and even feel forgiven for now, 
then I, it's it's just almost craziness then for me to sit and say, thank God I'm not the Pharisee, right? That's the, the punchline of the thank God I'm not the tax collector parable isn't thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. It's like, oh my God, I'm like the Pharisee. Mm. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Mm. Yeah, uh, let me use an illustration and it's, and it's from my own experience, which is, you know, that's where I'm going to draw from. And it's not to, to tell you this illustration is a little bit of a two-edged sword because on the one hand, it, it's, it sounds like, oh, what good choices you made in this situation. This, is, this illustration actually reveals the depth of the kind of work that the Holy Spirit's been doing in my own heart because this would have never happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, when the shack came out and a, a lot of, a lot of pushback happened after the first initial wave of, oh my gosh, this is just transformational. And then, and then, you know, it was, it was impacting people's little security zones and, and leaderships, uh, arenas and of influence and things like that. And so uh, there was a particular leader who just absolutely slammed it and, and it went uh, viral and all that kind of stuff. And he told people not to read it and all that. And um, and he's a very very powerful presence in terms of social media. And and um, as I as I listened to it, I knew he hadn't read the book. And mm. and um, and um, you know, and frankly, he probably sold me more books than almost any other single person on the planet. But <laughs> where the law comes, sin abounds. You know, and. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, I don't live that far away from where he operates at that time. And, and um, I knew about his community and I knew that he was uh, a little bit of a fascist in terms of his leadership style, actually a lot of, quite a bit of, of a fascist. And, 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 and I just, and I knew that it, it wouldn't last because fascism has no roots to it. Mm. And um and so, but, you know, I'm, I'm just walking this out one day at a time asking, so Holy Spirit, you know, what is there, is how do you want me to look at this? That's my first question. You know, Jesus, how do you want me to look at this? And is there anything you want me to do? And, um, over a period of time, I, I reached out, um, actually, I, I have a friend who knew I was going to uh, reach out to this gentleman and and he asked me to meet with a, a whole community of people who had been absolutely devastated by by what that ministry had done and and I did the same morning that I that I met with the gentleman and, and later that morning and what I did is I contacted him and I said would you because uh, he called me all kinds of theological terms that and that's why I knew he hadn't read the book and uh, <laughs> I said would you would you be open to meeting me in a public forum and just having a conversation about this? And he said, no, eh, absolutely not. I said, well, I'll, I'll meet you on your terms. He said, you would come to my office and meet me here by yourself. I said, absolutely. And so that's what I did. And, and we started a 40, about a 45 minute conversation, just he and I. And um, about 20 minutes into it, he says, how come every time I try, I try to talk theology, you turn it to relationship? 
And I said, because you and I were not going to agree even on our terms. You know, mm. you're, you're, we're just not going to agree. And so I'm not here to try to convince you. And um, I said, I do have some questions. And I said, why do you hate women? And why are your followers, why do you think they have such a reputation for being mean? And those weren't questions to try to put him in his place or anything like that. I'm, I'm looking at this man going like, what's your story? Because there's a story here. And he immediately started telling me about his really difficult family history and, mm. and um, the alcoholism and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And, and, um, and, uh, you know, he, he says at the end, he says, you know, I'm going to be going up to the mountains for a few days and, and I'll be thinking about stuff. And, you know, I felt like I was there to just be the presence uh, and a connection. So later when the system did crash and burn and he was getting death threats from people who he had harmed, um, we sent um, a back channel. We had a guest house uh, at our place and we just said, look, I'd, if you are ever in a situation where you and your family feel in danger and you just want to disappear off the grid, we have a place that's safe. And, mm -hmm. um, and I sent it through. We have a mutual friend. And, but again, it's like, why? You want me to tell you my story? You want me to tell you about the, the people that I hurt? You want, you know? Mm. Because I know my story so well. I'm not going to be in a position where I'm going to sit in a seat of judgment. You know, I have a, I have a very good friend who's on death row in Tennessee. He's uh, mm. been on death row for 36, 37 years. Gosh. Killed a young man um, when he was 18. He killed another man who happened to be on furlough from the military. And so he, he was given the death sentence and, and he's now waiting for, for that to, to be affected. But he's one of the freest people I've ever met. And I, I love him. His name's Terry King. He's on, he's in unit two on in Riverbend and just outside of Nashville. And when I first met him, he said, can I tell you how, why the shack changed my life? And I said, yeah, please. He said it was the cave scene with the wisdom of God, with Sophia. He said, I'm reading that chapter and I'm in my cell and I feel like my skin's on fire and I feel like my clothes are burning off and I'm so in this conviction that I, I'm, I'm literally crawling on the floor of my cell trying to figure out how to get out of my own skin. And he said, it's because in that scene, I was confronted with something that I had never been willing to see. And that was, I've always said what I did. I've always admitted that I killed the other young man. I, I, that's never been something that I withheld, but I never owned it. And he says, the reason that I never owned it, that was revealed to me in my cell as I was reading that chapter, was because I still sat in the seat of judgment. Because at least I wasn't a pedophile on death row. At least I'm better than somebody. And because I felt self-righteous and better than somebody, 
I didn't have to own my stuff. I could sit in that judgment of them and feel vindicated because at least I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And and it it changed him. And uh, even now he contacts people outside the the prison looking for those who might come visit the pedophiles on death row because some of them have never had a visitor in decades. Hmm. And uh, but again, you know, we've got to get past this, especially those of us who've had the revelation of Jesus in our life. And it's like the Prince of Peace who's come into our life, who came to us in our own brokenness. And, and you know, we, we have, quote, unquote, whitewashed our history. Um, and the conviction of the, of the Holy Spirit is to expose the places that are broken so that then we can participate in the healing that needs to happen on this planet. And the way through is toward Hmm. Wow. It, it, Amen. Yeah, that's what I'm sitting here thinking. Wow. Um. Yeah. Whew. Sorry, I, that was beautiful. Um. I'm yeah. I'm speechless as, as far as that goes. Um. It's true. Yeah. And and that's the thing that's so so perplexing to me, and and I I shouldn't even say that because I still sit in the judgment seat in so many places in my own life. Uh, but it's what's so perplexing to me that that especially with that story is there's always someone else that we can look to and be like at least I'm not that person, at least I'm not doing this, at least I'm not, um yeah I did this but I didn't do this and and like you said that actually hinders us from owning it that hinders us from actually being able to be free from it. And uh, like, why, why do you think we we've even perpetuated this idea that it needs to be better? Like, or we, we as people need to be better than owning our stuff. Why, why have we projected this idea that we can't come clean and actually like, we can talk about it. Like we can all sit around and, and confess to our buddies, whatever things we've done, but we can't actually like own it. Let me let me ask it a different way. What would it cost you to step down from the seat of judgment? Hmm. Really, what would it cost you? I think is is that a rhetorical question? No. I think nothing and everything at the same time. I think you're right. But talk about it. Tell me why. Well, I think nothing because it's not my seat to sit in. It's it's something that I've never, uh, I don't want to say earned, but it's not my rightful place. And so it's not a place that I actually like have the authority to sit in judgment. And then, but at the same time, it's everything. Because if I give that up, then I don't have the ability to, I, I don't have the ability or self-perceived ability to sit in judgment of other people. Yeah, you don't get to be God anymore. <laughs> that's, that's a crucifixion right there you know it does go back for me to to paul's cave scene in the, in, in the shack and, and in my own way transposing that to the cross and the dilemma it presents there if christ has has united himself with the one i've judged will i leave that one on the cross mm. uh, so good brett 
Mm. Um, what am I going to do? Or while I let them off the cross, well, wait a minute, but what if I let them off the cross? And it's like, I don't know what to do. I know. Maybe how about I resign as judge and let Jesus work that out or something <laughs> like that. Um, this idea, you know, and this originated in a uh, from a young man who had molested some kids when he was a teenager. He he was caught, but he was also off the hook because he was a young enough minor, uh, baby a babysitter. And I took him to a vision of the cross where I, I just led him there. And I, I said, tell Jesus what you did. I was angry at him and I was hoping he'd get a good beat down, but I knew where to take him. Hmm. So I said, just tell Jesus what you did. And he had to, he, he pictured Christ on the cross as he's telling them him this. And then, and then he said, um, Jesus speaks to him afterwards after a full, full exposure and confession and, and Christ speaks a word of forgiveness to him. And, and the guy says, that was too easy. And then Jesus looks and said, no, it wasn't. No, it mm. wasn't. You know, so that'd be an example of, a, of an encounter where we see um, the, the one on the cross just really in a moment like that, you realize I am entirely disqualified from mm. judging, condemning, from even making the choice or the verdict myself. It's just... Um, the best I can do is is walk people there and let others walk me there. I think it exposes how much we don't know who we are in Christ. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think it's a huge exposure that that we we actually think, well, God's not good at this. Somebody's somebody's got to pay. This is why we have a sacrificial system. Yeah. Mm. So wow. somebody's got to pay, and and if if God's not going to enact, you know. The judgment that I think needs to be meted out, I'm going to. And if I can't do it in physical form, I can sure do it verbally. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Or, or even just like in my stupid imagination, right? Yeah. Like yeah. In my imagination, I'm, I'm getting all this vindicate vindication. It's like totally a fantasy, mm, and all totally. it does is keep the hand of judgment on my own throat. Yeah. And they might be quite happily walking through life, not even thinking about what about me. <laughs> you know. That's yeah. I think, and that's a good point. I think the reason why it's the pastor a crisis is that the word crisis is the English word from which we we derive from crisis, which is the Greek word for judgment. That's one of the words for judgment. Mm. And the beautiful thing about the crisis is that it is an exposure. It's an exposure. It's an exposing process. And that's where hope dwells. Our problem is that because we sit in the seat of judgment, when the exposing happens, we're not looking for, for healing. We're looking for punishment and retribution. And then we wonder, why do we struggle with a God who is so punitive and retributive that we have crafted and made in our own image? which is retributive and punitive. Hmm. That's because that God doesn't exist, only in our own empty imagination. Hmm. And that becomes a crucible within itself to go like, so what does this mean? Yeah. Could hmm. it mean that you might have to trust? Hmm. Trust trust the process that, that someone who has who has better things in mind for us has it under control yeah and let's let's not let's not 
put God in the category of standing idly by, just wringing his hands, going like, oh my gosh, they, you know, mm, we'll, yeah. we'll just, you know, turn turn away. Like, like a McDonald says, you know, this is not a God who stands idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in you. Everybody mm. gets salted with fire, but that fire is intended to redeem and purify and heal. Mm. And, and even our need to be vindictive and retributive is going to be burned because it is not of love's kind. Hmm. Yeah. He is a fiery fury. Yeah. Of love. And with that in mind, I think a closing question would be with, with all of the things that we've talked about in mind with, with these, these ideas of, of, crisis these ideas of uh the ways that we've kind of put ourselves into positions um of of judgment that in turn create situations like the one the pastor experiences how do we facilitate and i think this will be a question for this generation and the generation to come as as the church kind of leaves behind uh, a kind of a I don't, again, like not evangel, all evangelicals are the same, but this kind of, uh, borderline fascist evangelicalism that is so pervasive in the media, when we're walking away from that, it's going to become an important question of how are we going to create our communities to facilitate, uh, for leaders, environments that don't create situations like that, or even just for people. And, And but I also want to keep in mind, as we've probably all experienced and witnessed and, and walked with people through uh, varying degrees of abuse, how do we create systems that are grace-filled, but how do we also put our foot down firmly and salt with fire situations of abuse? Bradley? Just thinking. <laughs> what I think, well, what I'm thinking about are actually the 12-step communities where it's a place where you you have a kind of non-judgmental listening but also like a fear you have you're required to go through a fearless moral inventory with with a trusted companion mm. and um and so so on the one hand on the one hand uh, it's an absolutely safe place to to share honestly but it's also you know, the excruciating pain of doing your fearless moral inventory. And that's what Paul, Paul was describing in his work with in therapy. I I would, I would say that phrase is really helpful. It was a, he did a fearless moral inventory of not just the wrongs he had done, but the defects of character and the wounds that drove them all the way back to childhood trauma. And he did it with, um, uh, that that kind of ex- exposure was done with a safe person who wouldn't backstab or crucify him um, for telling the truth. And um, we have not done well at that, really, um, that we have made disclosure and humiliation uh, marriage partners in, in a really ugly way that 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 causes people to lie and hide and and not come clean. And I, I think uh, that this is something we need to be really thinking about in the coming years, because there are models for it then. It's just what, um, what is it? What, what is it that sabotages those models? 
and mm. and in in every case um i think the the most powerful active ingredient is that we have a loving god you know and to partner with that loving god in 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 presenting you know what our crash is and or was and and how we're going to process it so that, that's my first first instinct answers. my my first instinct is that it has to be incarnational before it can be any kind of strategy. Mm, and, and, you know, how, how do you do that? How do we craft um, moving forward? Take the risk of community. Yeah. You know, and it, it's out of the ripple effect of that that things will change. It's, it's not about coming up with a new systemic solution. And, um, uh, it, and that's, that's trying to... <sighs> that's trying to placate our woundedness through performance again. And it's just like, we don't need to be trafficked or be trafficking in human souls anymore in a religious right. sense. Hmm. And it's like, no, the way forward is toward take the risk of actually being in relationships of authenticity and honesty. And I think that's, thank God for the 12 steppers, you know, they they have really helped the community of faith begin to get catch glimpses of what it might look like, but they do it by doing it. Yeah, yeah, and and, and with that question of 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 abuse, I guess because I, I I do think that that's a really important conversation, especially I feel like uh, even just in conversations with with how the I mean, I'm not going to sit and be like, there are people in the, the deconstruction water to wine uh, community that are like, okay with abuse. But I think that there is this kind of relativism that's starting to slowly creep in. That's like, whatever's good for you is good for you. Um, when, when there are things that are not good for you. Um, but what do you, what, what, how do we, how do we deal with abuse? How do we deal with um moral failures if you want to use that terminology like what is the what what should be our disposition towards that yeah i'd be aware of starting a system again what I, I would do mm. yeah i do but, notice that just like this last week um that pope francis uh made a he called for the end of the secrecy rules around child sexual abuses in the Catholic church. He's going after it now. Hmm. And that what had happened is that um, the Vatican itself had, had and church officials refused to share information with relevant authorities. And, and he says that's over and it has to be absolutely over. And so they're looking at sweeping changes in their context. If it's not even already way too late, you know, hmm. but um but again, yeah. that's the that's the outworking of the Holy Spirit in Pope Francis's life. Yeah, it's you know? incarnational. And it's not. It's incarnational yeah. where he's at, and and who's in front of him, right? I'm yeah. not Pope Francis, and so I I'm I don't have that kind of ability to make those kinds of changes. So it's not on my. Uh, it can be in my imagination, like oh, wouldn't it be great if I had this? You know. Um, so it's it's not about like Brad was saying it's not about coming up with a systemic solution in our imaginations. It's about how do you deal with it in the relationships that are actually in front of you. 
That's mm. the real world. And, yeah. and that's where you trust that as you relate to the people in front of you, as you don't abuse the people in front of you, as you move from the seat of judgment with regard to the people in front of you, that you trust that the ripples will be redemptive. And if, uh, and if you end up, you know, being a Joseph in Egypt or a Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's courts, um, um, or Darius actually, but, but if you end up there, that's where the Holy Spirit will then um, allow influence and impact by your presence. But it's like, mm. that's no different than today. It's like the Holy Spirit impact and presence is, presence is impact. So what, what, otherwise we get all this sidelined and imaginary, you know, planning for what, as if it's disassociated from our real lives. Mm. And it's like, what's actually in front of your life? How, how are you responding to those in front of you uh, in non-abusive, non-violent ways? You know, I was, um, I think I told uh, Bradley this, but I, I love Jacques Ellul, who's sociologist and theologian, French, and, um, and wrote 66 books, you know, half of them on theology, half on sociology. But he has a statement, and it's this. The only legitimate anarchy is an absolute irrevocable commitment to nonviolence in thought, word, and deed. Hmm. Right? And that's the only legitimate anarchy. And it's an ab. Why would we make an absolute irrevocable commitment to nonviolence? Because that's the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if, and if you don't think it is, then you've got a God that is created out of some sense of distortion. Mm. God yeah. is powerful, but not violent. And God doesn't use death to accomplish good ends. The means don't justify the ends. Hmm. But that goes back to our view of who God is, too, at, at, at a really core level. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I guess in, in closing with the with the concepts that we've kind of jumped around and, and talked about a little bit, what so you guys worked together on this on this novella, The Pastor Crisis, and it, it was really amazing as, as I was reading it to see kind of both of you guys as people, both as individuals really bleed through and and sh kind of show yourselves in in a behind from behind the text but also to see ways that you guys really collaborated i mean obviously it was a collaboration but to see the two minds kind of come together to create this project what what do you want people to to walk away from from this book with i i'd like people to walk away with uh the invitation to to meet divine love in their own darkness and mm. um, we're hearing that some have been doing that already and it's yep. been pretty profound mm. i you know when when i'm involved in a project I, I i really don't make consideration for outcomes it's just not how i think about things anymore and so that's a funny question for me to think about <laughs> and uh, um I think good creative work always opens up space for people to hear for themselves. And I guess that would be that what I would want is that people would hear for themselves what divine love is saying to them mm -hmm. specifically. And, um, 
And so, you know, uh, again, a, a lot of our evangelical heritage hasn't hasn't made for good art because we turned it into propaganda and um hmm. and it's like no if it's good art people will hear and they'll hear things that we didn't even write hmm. but it's just created a space so that they can hear and and that would be my hope is that we've created a good space so people can hear for themselves hmm. and and i think you guys you guys have it it, it was definitely at least from someone who read it, it was a, it was a profound experience. It was, it was brutal. Like at moments it was really hard to read. Um, but it was, it, it was powerful in the sense that it, it really did. I, I was reading, uh, reviews and quotes to kind of refresh before we started. And someone left a review that said, uh, if, uh, if a pastor is ir if, if a pastor is not beyond redemption, neither are you. Right. And I thought that was, that was really, uh, yeah, I was like, dang, I like that. I'm, I was like, if that was in the book, I must have missed it. But that that was a great uh, segue into. Yeah, Chris, if you get a chance, Chris, listen to the audio at some point. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, it's done by six voice actors, mm-hmm. and and Boyd who did the narr- narration, and it's you get to hear it in a different way than you ever read it, mm. and and it's it's astounding. It's I'm just blown away by the the audio book. As the kids say, next level. <laughs> next level. <laughs> it really was for me, you know. Me too. And here, we, Paul and I are weeping through it mm. because because the actors access some of the those authentic lives and their stories in a way that um, uh, it felt like from the heart, even from the actors, it felt hard to believe they were acting <laughs> except in the sense of tying into their own, their, yeah. their own authenticity. I, I, think, I think part of that is also due to the fact that a lot of the, uh, there are good chunks of dialogue that come directly from people that we know. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll actually go and, and download that right now to listen to it. Um, it only takes like three and a half hours. So it's. Oh, perfect. Yeah. It's <laughs> But yeah, you'll, and I, please drop us a note and tell, tell you if and how, if it was different, the experience of listening to it, I'd be really curious because it was such, it was a different experience for me. No, I, I definitely will. And it, it sounds like it, it, it's a very powerful, it, it, yeah, it sounds powerful. So I'm, I'm very excited to do that. But where, so where is this book available? Where audio hard copy digital where can you, um, get, you can get you can get them all you can get a hard copy kindle or audiobook on amazon.com and you can also get an autograph copy of the book on premiercollectibles.com slash pastor same price right same price yeah premier with an e on the end of premier premiercollectibles.com slash pastor um, heck yeah and I think also the audiobooks on, um, well, it's on a few formats, Amazon and iTunes probably. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Wherever wherever good books are sold. I suppose the, so. The correct yeah. answer. And bad ones. Just, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I I just want I usually end the show just by um, 
I, f- I feel like the, the show has kind of taken a mind of its own, but I really started this with the mission of, of equipping uh, people who were deconstructing, going through the water to wine process, who were uh, kind of dealing with this intense theology with something that might help them think in practical ways about uh, spiritual disciplines and practices. And one of the practices that I felt was lacking when I started the show, and it's a way I always end the show, is just by uh, practicing the discipline of encouragement. And so I just really want to say thank you. I know I said it earlier, but gosh, like from the bottom of my heart, like you, you both in, in so many ways have uh, challenged me. You guys have pushed me forward in, in thinking you guys, you're, I mean, I was even just thinking earlier, like the, the theology of suffering that you guys push forth in, in both of your works as individuals and in this work, but also your theology of grace. And in a, in a culture that, that talked about grace, but really cheapened it and made it this kind of awkward thing where it's like, yeah, you have grace, but you need to do all these things too. But like, not really because grace alone, it, it, it was so healing to be like, oh, wait, what? No, I'm actually like, there is grace. Like there's actually forgiveness. The, through, through both of your guys' work, the, the gospel became good news. Good. And, and so, uh, gosh, like, I, I mean that, like, I, I can't, I can't even tell you how excited I was when I got the email that I was going to be talking to you guys, because I, I really am that grateful to both of you mm-hmm. for your work. Thank you, Chris. And it's been a delight and a, and a great conversation, a real one. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you.